0: From Jiva Theatre Center in Rochester, New York, this is Out of the Rehearsal Hall. It's the third season of the podcast, and we're back to celebrate courageous storytelling and our own power to make change and to shape a better world for us all. Our guests this season are artists, scholars, and curators of content from around the country and right here in Rochester, the ancestral and occupied territory of the Onondaga, or as we say in English, the Seneca people. My name is Jenny Werner, and I am Jiva's literary director and resident dramaturg, and I look forward to bringing you a season of evocative conversations out of the rehearsal hall. Welcome back to Out of the Rehearsal Hall. I'm excited for today's conversation because we've never spoken with a projection designer on the podcast. Our guest today is Rashawn Devante Johnson, a video artist and designer of projections, scenery, and sound for theater film and installations. Based in Chicago, his practice 8 Infinity Studio specializes in video engineering, consultation, design, and content creation for the performing arts. Devante has collaborated with theaters all around the country, and you can find the whole list. On Jiva's blog, jivajournal.wordpress.com, and our audiences will remember his incredible designs for Thurgood and Ring of Fire. In addition to design for the theater, he's also worked on several installations, including personal works such as We Are All in This Together, Shutdown, Crisis, Restart as part of Wonder Wall at Bay Street Theater, Living Sculpture as part of Lux, Ideas Through Light at the Beinecke Rare Books Library, and Juniper Ascending at Yale University, as well as collaborative works, including The Ballad of Lula Del Rey 2.0 with Manual Cinema at the Logan Art Center, Convergence, A Mad Tea Party at the Yale Art Gallery, and Passenger, featured at the University of Chicago and the Bridgeport Film Festival. Born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, Devante is a graduate of the Ohio State University, where he studied primarily as an actor, director, and cinematographer in film. His film, The Price of Pride, was an official selection for the Columbus International Film Festival in 2007. He received his MFA from the Yale School of Drama in Design as a student in the projection program, and he has lectured at Yale University, Columbia College Chicago, Syracuse University, Boston University, the theater school at DePaul, and the Ohio State University. Devante is a proud member of United Scenic Artists Local 829 and a lecturer at the David Geffen School of Drama at Yale. Let's call Devante. Devante, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah. Um, I wonder if, if you would start by just talking about how you got into the theater. Yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, if I want
1: to talk about way back, you know, obviously, uh, as as young children are being forced into plays for school, that could be kind of the first little... Uh, note of my fear for in the theater. And I really enjoyed actually working on a lot of those school plays. Uh, Working up until high school, uh, my first kind of real play I worked on was uh, The Wizard of Oz, where I played Oz. So that was really fun. Nice. And uh, I think the biggest thing about that was there was this voice processing thing that they did that, uh, you know, for me to sound really, you know, wicked and everything. But I think (laughs) that uh, what was exciting about it was, That was kind of the first time where I noticed design, in the sense that I was like, oh, I'm actually more interested in how they made my voice sound like this versus uh, the play itself or my part. So um, I guess you could say from there, uh, I've always been involved in some sort of performance. I was actually part of a martial arts group uh, from 5 till 15. Uh, I was a second degree black belt. Oh, so, wow. And we were a demo team. So we did demonstrations of our different forms and uh, break boards, and there's always an audience. So there's a certain level of performance in me that, uh, you know, started at a young age. But uh, when I got into college, I actually um, pursued a much more, I guess you could say, formalized view of what I should do. And that was I started out in architecture. And uh, I realized that I have no interest in architecture. And so (laughs) I was like, okay, uh, well, let me see. What else can I do? Oh, well, I've been doing theater. I should do theater. And uh, I did some acting classes. Uh, I started to work around design classes as well, uh, specifically sound design. And on top of all of that, um, I've always had a passion for film. And so I did a lot of filmmaking in college as well. So it wasn't until my final year that I found a confluence of all those things. And uh, that brought me into the world of projection design specifically. But my, my foray into theater has always been around in different formats. So,
0: Yeah. I'm interested in what made you initially um, decide to go into architecture. What was that initial impulse about, do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I was in high school, I also was very fascinated by art in general. And I was also very, uh, excited about buildings, like just the design of buildings, the history of buildings. And I was like, well, maybe this is what I should do. Cause I like art. I like drawing. I like, uh, buildings. Maybe that's what sounds great to me, but there's so much more obviously to anything that you decide to do. I think the things that, uh, were a part of kind of the baseline of architecture uh, were not things that I was interested in. And I think that one of the things that I've carried over in my life is, if you like the things that are really not that fun, that's a part of it, then maybe it's something that you can do. But if you don't <laughs> like the the horrible parts and just don't don't do
0: it. right <laughs> <laughs> and the horrible parts of architecture were not for you no 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 i, I couldn't yeah. i couldn't do all that there's there's yeah. too much <laughs> what are the horrible parts of of your work now we're going to get more into into sort of talking about the good parts but oh, what, for you, sure. what are the hard parts about? for your work? sure
1: you know and i think um in some ways it's, it's really funny because i think um those things don't really get illuminated until you start working with people who are also interested in it and then find that they don't want to do it. And you're like, oh, I guess that kind of <laughs> is not fun. It's like uh, the paperwork side it's the meetings. It's like, uh, and obviously those things that can be or should be fun in a lot of ways. But like having to dissect the script and then like the research that goes into each every part is different than when you have a projection design and people see it. They're like, wow, that's so cool. I love how the video moves in here. It's like actually that had like 500 conversations about and there were like 20 different versions and they all in conversation with these various groups and when we finally did it we found out that the timing was wrong so it's like when you are actually like a filmmaker you have a lot more control over those things and so um knowing that this is a collaborative art and knowing that whenever you have an idea, it has to go through so many people, either love it or you hate it. And if you can't deal with that, then I don't think it's, it's for you.
0: <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That collaboration is such a huge part of the process. Mm-hmm. And
1: it's a different kind of collaboration. Yeah. I mean, I think most things are collaborative, especially filmmaking is super collaborative, but it's a different type of collaborative And if yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, talk about that first film that you made when you were in college. What was that film? i uh, was well.
1: I could talk about the very first film, but I'm actually not going to talk about that. I would say I'm going to okay. talk about the. Uh, i to talk about the first I could could say film that felt like it was me, and that was okay, that's great. called um, the Unawakened. And so uh, the Unawakened was about um, I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of different influences in the type of films that I see, um, and I wouldn't necessarily say that. I would want to make those kind of movies, but I was always influenced by the imagery. And this particular piece uh, was about what if I could could not wake from a dream? And then what was that dream? Um, I feel like in a lot of ways that uh, it's very reminiscent of like my experience watching a Terrence Malick movie. But that movie itself was like me doing everything. I acted in it, I directed it, I edited it, I shot it, the person who helped me with it was my little brother who was seven at the time. (laughs) Amazing. Um, But uh, that process uh, was very informative of how I really enjoy working and that is there's a kind of totalness to projection design where you kind of have to have your hand and everything and that movie really kind of culminated in me telling a specific thought process, not necessarily about the narrative of it or, you know, the script that I made, I kind of meandered around it. But it was really fun because the teacher that I was with, she really kind of guided me down a path where I didn't have to feel like it had to be anything specific. Like a lot of my classmates, they really did go hard in like the filmmaking world and mine was a little bit more abstract and I felt a little ashamed of that in the beginning and then I kind of embraced it. So. It was a really good uh, exploration of that, and it kind of led me down the path of, to where I'm at now.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting um, that you talk about your filmmaking as sort of more abstract. Given, um, I feel like you know your projections, um, at least in the projects that I have seen you do at Jiva, there's it's not so much like they're illustrating, uh, like here I am in a kitchen or something like that there. It's not setting place. It's, it's more abstract. It's a, some, a lot of times you're, you're doing something different with the projection than just like setting place. Um, will you talk a little bit about how you approach your projection design?
1: Mm, Totally. Yeah. I mean, uh, when I first started out, I I kind of leaned into a more uh, instinctual sort of, um, vibe with what I did in the sense that, um, I always had, this kind of zoom in, zoom out idea of of looking at things. Um, my my uncle uh, was a photographer, and so um, a lot of the ways in which I look at stuff is through that kind of lens. Uh, and what's really cool, especially after I started taking some of my own photography classes, is the idea that like you know an object you can have the same object, but as you get closer, it becomes something different. And the same thing can be if you zoom away far enough too. So it's like. What exactly is the focus? What exactly is inside of something? What, how can you perceive something? What is the perspective of something? And um, you know, I, I would say kind of the first shows that I did was still very much about that. Like I was always kind of, if you're in a coffee shop, like what what is in a coffee shop? I mean, you can easily have a picture of a coffee shop, but if you're sitting there, sometimes you don't look at the ceiling. Maybe you're just looking at your computer. Maybe you notice this person over in the corner, maybe you hear uh, the coffee machine. And so like those elements, if you just saw those elements, is is that enough to tell the story of of a coffee shop? Because Mm -hmm. that's really all you paid attention to anyway when you went in there. Um, Those are the kind of the things that I would always ask myself. And um, after going to grad school, I feel like I refined that more uh, learning under Wendell Harrington because I feel like she has a similar kind of thought process but it's more gauged in research. And so what I decided to do is take that kind of girl reaction of myself how i first approach things and then apply a sort of research to it too so that way if we are dealing with something historical for example just because it's really easy to have the the specific historical image what if you have something else from the same time period and what does that actually mean because then you know it's not necessarily about the thing itself it's about the feeling of the place and that sometimes can be represented with peripheral imagery versus just the the main thing. And that seems to be something that I'm more excited about because I really like the idea of of when you think of something it's not always about the thing itself it's about the other things. Like if I think of my mom, I'm not necessarily just going to think of her face. It's a very very straightforward thing to think about. Sometimes I might think of my mom by eating something or by smelling something, you know, it's like if I smell her perfume what if when I think of my mom, you see an image of a perfume bottle? Like that's, that's, that's the same thing in my mind. And so I think that level of abstraction can be interesting. Um, and I think that I, I'm really appreciative of what you said about uh, how, you, how you felt about the, the work that I do, because that is another thing that I oftentimes uh, always have a conversation with the director about you know they're like oh i want something abstract it's like what is abstract actually i think everyone (laughs) has their own opinion sometimes people think abstract means like you know random lines everywhere which it does but abstract can also mean if you talk about a balloon and you show the string that's still abstract because you're not talking about the balloon itself you're talking about a part of the balloon
0: and you're asking the
1: audience to fill in the blank which i think is what abstraction is about it's about yeah. How do you allow the viewer to fill in what the person's doing? Right. Filling?
0: Right. There's something really evocative about that when you when you do when you have that space between um, a literal thing and and sort of something more metaphorical. There's something, or or not even necessarily metaphorical, but a part of it that we don't necessarily think of um, immediately. So that there's something really evocative about that that gives you. An opportunity to have, like, you have, you can have an emotional journey in response to the projection design that is that connects with the script um, in a really exciting way. I think.
1: Well, I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, uh, well, you also do a lot of uh, more experimental work in addition to sort of traditional theater um, and opera and dance. Um, will you talk about how is is that? is doing work that's like installations or performance art, is that different to you? Do you use a different process when you're doing that kind of work? Um, in some ways.
1: Um, I think for myself as an artist, I um, am always interested in something different. And I always try to take that into consideration for any project that I do. It's like, what what small thing can I do that was different than the last thing or the last couple things or, something I may have never done, and it doesn't have to be so dramatic. And so I feel like working in different mediums allows me to, to do that, and in different ways. Like, uh, you know, when I work on an experimental piece, for example, most of the times that work comes out of a, a prompt from the group, or if it's a devised piece, for example. My background as an actor, um, I, I worked uh, a lot on the um, Meisner method, um, and so and that was something I was really excited about. Uh, I actually worked, a, I did like an improv group where we um, did a lot of social work or social, I guess you can call it social justice. It wasn't the same phrase as I guess you can term it now, but it was a lot about um, dealing with issues that may have happened on campus. And we would create pieces based on that mm-hmm. just as a way for people to have a conversation. And it was born out of a, of a devising method uh, f- similar to Meisner but also just, uh, yeah, taking, taking a concept and, and running with it. And I feel like I try to do that with especially my experimental work, where one thing leads to the next. And, you know, sometimes it's about the tools that are available. Sometimes it's about the, uh, the story that we're trying to tell. But it's not necessarily about following a script. It's about uh, feeling and what can you bring to the table as an artist versus what can you supply as a means of support. And I would say that that's kind of the biggest difference is like how much of yourself is in it. I think in a lot in experimental work, you get a chance to really have a input in a way that without you, the story would be considerably different you know there might be a whole element that you brought in that might be just for you it's almost like uh, it's almost like being in a band i think and you know oftentimes i feel like in experimental work everyone gets a solo and i feel like most Um. of the times yeah like i did a show in thailand recently and uh i did the scenery and the projections and my whole bit to the director was like i feel like if if we want the 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 space to feel like it's different at the end why don't we just rip everything apart so the idea was that i made a set that could be ripped apart and put back together again but like that whole moment where all the performers are ripping the stage apart like that's very much a scenic moment and it's just born out of the idea of like hey we should just rip everything apart you know and so that was like the solo moment for the set right right um, and so yeah i think that that's that's a huge difference for me at least
0: that feels like a violent action, like the ripping apart of the set. Is that, what was that, say more about what that was like, what the impact of that was.
1: For sure, yeah. Well, the piece was called Damage Joy, uh, the definition of uh, schadenfreude. And um, the entire piece was a physical piece, so there, was, there wasn't there was any talking. I mean, there was, but uh, for the most part, it was all kind of just action. And in it, you had kind of these like weird clowns. I call them clowns. They didn't ha- really have clown makeup on, but uh, there were four of them and they would just do things to torture each other. And they would they would gauge the audience. So if the audience thought it was too much, they would take it back. If, they, if the audience wanted more, they would do more. And the, uh, the interesting part was like how the audience reacted to people experiencing pain, that some people enjoyed it some people didn't, depending on the thing, depending on how much. And so the whole piece, kind of always escalated it always got worse and worse and worse to the point where i guess you could say they couldn't take it anymore and then that's why the set was destroyed because the entire system had to be destroyed and at the end they all kind of created their own little bubbles within the rubble so they would take part of the set and then they would hide in it uh so that was that was kind of the
0: wow so it becomes sort of about like dismantling a system that's hurting right exactly yeah Oh, wow. That's pretty incredible. I love the the um metaphor in
1: that, yeah, totally. and um um I think the the difficult part was the fact that, like, you know what what can we have that feels like it'll rip apart all the time? And <laughs> so we found some wrapping paper. So it's like it goes down to like the tools then. It's like what can be the the thing that will rip apart? And then we found this whole wrapping paper theme, and then we had balloons everywhere. It was like it was like this weird circus because we found wrapping paper that looked like a circus. And so
0: but you know. <laughs> wow. And now your your practice is called 8 Infinity Studio. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about where that name comes from and what your focus is there?
1: Uh, well, really the, the name just comes from the fact that I really enjoy the, the 8 symbol. Uh, when I was in um, elementary school, 8 was like my favorite number. And the fact that it's also the infinity symbol as well. So it just became something that I always thought about, like, what would I name my own company? And feel like that that feels right to me. And I also think that uh, in terms of like mathematics, you know, oftentimes when you were in school, you always had something that's like, this can go from zero to infinity. You know, that would be like the, so it's like, oh, okay, well, what if it's eight to infinity? Uh, this, uh-huh. That was always the, the interesting thing for me. Um, and I think that, that if, if I were to talk about what is that in a relationship to what I do, it's like, I would like to say that I like to do as much as possible, except for not everything. So if that's, if that's what that is, then that's, that's what my company is. Almost
0: everything. Almost everything. Great. I love it. I love it. Um, are there artists, uh, projection or otherwise whose work is, uh, particularly inspirational to you?
1: Um, you know, I, I would say that there's two, two. Two kind of categories of 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 influence for myself. Um, If I were to talk about a projection designer, uh, you know, I've got to go to Wendell in terms of uh, her um, presence in my life as well as just like her work um, and what she does as a projection designer Um, and for the kind of medium. I think that uh, it's really easy to make things super complicated. And she has found a way to always figure out a way to distill a concept into something very simple and beautiful. And I think that that's something that I always try to strive for. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside of projections, uh, right now it's really interesting. I always have something else that always floats around in terms of influence, and I um, am super attracted to magic. If if I was you know around in the turn of the century i probably would want to be a magician mainly because the stuff that they did was a lot of what projection designers do in terms of like how projections work in a live theatrical sense they were still trying to figure out what film was and filmmaking and they were doing all sorts of weird stuff with it and um francis ford coppola with uh, bram stoker's dracula has been a huge draw for me right now in terms of influence, because in that movie, there are, there are visual effects, but there's no CGI of any of any kind. It's all in camera. There's not even any sort of like external animations. It's all in front of a camera, which is pretty
0: right.
1: pretty extraordinary. And and I got a chance to listen to a, a documentary about him talking about it, and then I felt so influenced by not just what he wanted to do. Uh, story-wise with the movie, but just like what story he was trying to tell, which was, there can be storytelling with, with within how you tell the story, not just the material itself. That there's merit to how you tell it, and that that means something that that can that can mean something to people. And so, I thought that that's a really cool thing to take away from.
0: It. Absolutely. Um, are there specific magicians now that you think are I mean, I, th- I think filmmakers often seem like magicians as well. But are are there are there magicians now that you think are pulling from that sort of that inspiration, that historical inspiration?
1: Um, none that I can I can find. Uh, you know, I've I've got an opportunity to go to see some magic acts. I feel like a lot of them are doing a lot of um, hand tricks, and if they do have some sort of visual sense, it's very very technical. I did see an advertisement for one, which I didn't get a chance to see that was, that seemed to be within the realm that I might be interested in, but, uh, I didn't get a chance to see it. So I can't say for certain on my, my own account, but yeah, I mean, to see something of that kind of vaudeville-esque level, I don't know if they could make money to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I would probably be the only fan too. So, but at the same time, yeah, I I haven't seen anybody. It doesn't mean that they don't exist, but
0: yeah yeah that's such a again i'm i'm gonna use that with the word evocative because it is there's something really rich and evocative about that um that kind of that art in that time period
1: for sure for sure and actually you know what to to mention uh some friends of mine uh they're though they're not magicians but they do do work that is influenced by it. manual cinema is a uh, a a troupe that you know does a lot of live theatrical performance but also as all about shadow puppetry they combine um, shadow puppetry and video and um, live music to create these pieces I work with them often but they actually are quite of, of the caliber that I would consider to be magicians in terms of that kind of modern sense of using something old and something new um, I'm always excited about when they want to do something else so
0: yeah yeah well the the Puppetry, again, is a really, you know, fascinating kind of magic mm-hmm. um, in itself, too. Yeah. So you've worked all over the country, um, uh, but you're based in Chicago, which I feel like is a very specific kind of theater mm-hmm. community. Um, will you talk a little bit about how being based in Chicago influences your work?
1: Uh, for sure, yeah. I mean, when I graduated from undergrad at Ohio State I uh, wanted to go to a city that I felt like I can learn more about uh, this thing that I felt like I stumbled upon. Like I said, I didn't really combine all these things until the end. So my first projection design was like the last year of school. And uh, I didn't really want to go to New York yet. Um, I didn't feel like I wanted to go that far. Um, And at the same time, I was actually heavily involved in television. Um, I had interned at a couple different television stations. So uh, my mentor at the television station, he recommended that I should reach out to some companies in Chicago. And I was like, well, there's also a huge theater community there. Maybe I can have my cake and eat it too. But I had moved there during the um, recession. So this was like 2009. Uh, uh-huh. So it was like there was, there was definitely no TV jobs in Chicago at the time. And I'd already moved there. so. It was actually quite great. I mean, I did. I couldn't say I was. It was great at the time because, <laughs> you know, in terms of like just being a young person out of work, it felt really horrible. But um, it also provided me an opportunity to really get deep into the theater world in Chicago, and I feel like that that informed me in terms of like what I'm excited about as a storyteller, what I really want to try to do in my life. Because I was kind of having my feet in all these different places. I, I definitely was interested in theater. I was also very interested in being a director of photography and film. I was also very interested in becoming a TV uh, director. Um, So I was doing all this stuff in college, and I realized that when I was working in the theater in Chicago, it it felt like there was an avenue for me to be creative. There was an avenue for actual um, professional work. And for me to be all these things, to be that director of photography, to be that television director in a way that felt like each project can be super different. And I, I learned that that's what I liked. I felt like that uh, the type of theater that I got involved with uh, when I got to Chicago was so varied, it was really exciting. I, I interned at a place called CollaborAction, whose mission has changed over the years, but at the time was, was very much about experimental theater. It was about doing short theater, it was about doing um, Experiential theater, which is like for parties, for museums. And it felt like I could do an installation job one day and I could do integrated projections into a show the next day and do a dance piece the, the following day and do VG, VJ for a, a party the next day. So I felt like getting a chance to know all those people and, and getting a chance to explore those things really got me engaged and involved in. The theater world in Chicago in one sense, and then also just it made me appreciate what kind of theatrical experience I can have in Chicago. So.
0: Yeah, well, and certainly a uh, experience like that where your job is different every day keeps you moving and inspired and, and looking forward to the next thing, I'm sure. Oh yeah,
1: for sure, for sure, and yeah. especially, yeah, for once again, like someone who was out of work, I was like, just give me something, I could do anything. <laughs>
0: Uh, um, and, uh, let's talk for a little bit about, um, some of the, the work that you've done at Jeeva. Um, a few years ago, you did the projection design for Thurgood, uh, about the life of Thurgood Marshall. And that show was just incredibly powerful. And your work on it was so gorgeous. I, um, I feel like some of those images, uh, that we saw behind Lester Purry, who was portraying uh, Thurgood are, are um, just sort of ingrained in my mind as, as, as a huge, you know, playing a huge role in the show. Um, Will you talk a little bit about, if you can remember from a couple of years ago and before COVID, um, (laughs) um, will you talk a little bit about how you approached that?
1: For sure. Yeah. I mean, on the page, sometimes things are just so difficult sometimes because I feel like you, you end up having to fight a couple different things. Sometimes you feel like you're fighting the playwright, sometimes you're fighting your own initial inclinations to how you see it, uh, and then maybe you fight the director. Luckily, I wasn't doing that much fighting in it, but at the same time, I do think that there is a natural inclination in the play for it to feel like a slideshow, that like, mm-hmm. you know, he's at this, uh, he, he's, I forget, he's like talking to some graduates, if I'm not mistaken, at the top of the play. And so therefore, he's like talking about his life. Uh, And it starts off in this very kind of PowerPointy, TED talky sort of way. And then it kind of morphs into a journey through his life. And um, I feel like in one way, you do have to like lean into whatever the facade of the beginning is. In order for that change to occur, because he starts off as this old man and then he becomes the young man and then he gets old again. So there's this like cyclical, like this, yeah, back and forth cyclical nature of it. And so I feel like one of my first things that I would do when I was younger would be like, well, I don't want it to feel like a PowerPoint. I'm going to do something completely different. Uh, and that's that's the first commit. That's the first fight that I have because well, actually that's the second fight. The first fight is like what I originally read in the play, and I was like, oh, I don't want to do it like this. And then I'm like fighting with myself, and I'm like, I don't want to do it like this. And I'm like, actually, you kind of do. And um, what I feel like I settled on with uh, the director was like, you know, we do start off with that facade. It's almost like a it's like a magic trick once again. It's like, you know, you you set it up you show the audience like, oh, it's going to be this. And then it gives the actor room to take us back in time because then all of a sudden you assume that it's going to be this type of play. And without having to do too much, you know, I don't have to like rewind the clock, but it's about how we see the images. It's like first, it's like very straightforward, you know, um, it's like, oh, here's the past, blah, blah, blah. But then it's like, When do we fade in? How long does it take to fade in? What kind of image are we looking at? What is the overall quality? And I think the beautiful part was the fact that we were using the Declaration of Independence as as a means of a a surface. And that kind of work allows for it to have a little bit more uh, ephemeralness to it. It's like all of a sudden, it's no longer just an image on a screen, but you are making an impression of an image on an already huge statement, which is you have this thing that defines the country. And now here are the images that might be uh, against what that's saying, or or, or mm-hmm. causes some sort of questioning. And mm-hmm. I think that it was also really cool to get an opportunity to collaborate with the lighting designer so that you know whenever there was a lighting moment with it, are there parts of the image that gets illuminated and not illuminated? Are there ways for that to make an impression on the image as well? Because in the end, it is kind of like a slideshow. But I think what we tried to do is alter how those images come to being. In the beginning, he was talking about very specific places and locations. And so therefore, whenever he talked about it, that's when we went there. And eventually, those images then become a little bit separate so that when it became when he was almost like remembering something. He might not even said it yet. He, we, he might talk about it like a little bit later, but we're already laying on an image because it's already come into his mind. So it's almost as if we take the, the literalness and we go inside of Thurgood. So that way, then it becomes about what we see in his mind. And then he talks about that thing so that and it can then transform and become almost like a, a stream of comp- consciousness of images. That's why then like all of a sudden, elemental things come in like the rain and the lightning, like it's becomes like a part of him versus just the thing, which could be super easy. But I think that our challenge was, how can we make this him when we see it?
0: Yeah, that's so fascinating that it it sort of is becoming like a a visual representation of his interior monologue in some ways. Um, or the emotional journey that he's on. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Uh, that's a really, that's a really cool way to, um, to describe that.
1: I, I and I mean, <laughs> sometimes I think of these things and I'm like, I don't know if I could actually pull it off.
0: <laughs>
1: sometimes I talk myself to a corner, but I feel like we started to get there eventually. Uh,
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And now. Right now running for a couple more weeks here at Jiva is uh, Ring of Fire. Mm-hmm. Um and I the I, I'm fascinated by your work on that, um on this show because the the musical is really kind of an excuse to celebrate Johnny Cash's music, right? Oh, sure. And the, the the sort of the story of it, the dialogue in it, it really takes a backseat to the music. And um so you're really telling one, like the, we're seeing a a through line in visuals, um, that is, is, I don't want to say that it's like more than the through line we get from the text, but because the text is, it's really, it's really more about celebrating his music. Um, there's something else that you're, you're doing with the visuals. Would you talk about kind of what your goal was, what you were going for, um, and, and how you, how you came up with the story that you're telling.
1: For sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny because like, I feel like I always love giving myself a challenge. At the same time, you know, it's like, I I do appreciate uh, some sort of like uh, impulse for why a story is being told. And I think that that, as I've gotten more into my careers, like I, I try to choose those shows that has a point to be told, and uh, despite the fact that I think that yeah, it's it's a little light in terms of things, I think that what's really beautiful is the catalog of songs and little snippets of text is trying to tell a story of a man going through his life in a way that has a certain retrospection, uh, yes. and I think that that is beautiful. I think that that's yeah. what I got when I listened to it and read through the script I was like oh I see what you're trying to do with his songs because I mean he's sung so much whether it was a cover or if his own original music I mean he's done the whole gamut he's sung songs for everybody whether or not you know you're a young person and you're listening to uh straight A's in love or you know (laughs) talking about (laughs) almost seeing the lord at the end of your life uh (laughs) right 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 so they were like okay well what songs can we use and I felt like, okay, well, then we have that. At least, you know, that's that's kind of the layer. That's the first layer. But then, you know, you have a very um, powerful figure as the main character. Like Johnny Cash was a heavily convicted person. Like, he had things that he believed in, and, you know, he did things about them. He, he had faults as well, you know? And I think that yeah. that's what's also talked about. So how do you take story of a man's life through music and show a journey that is not just about him, but just about also the, the nostalgia of people listening to him talk about the things that, or, uh, that he believed in. And how can some of these songs illuminate that? And uh, maybe we should lean into that level of nostalgia. I think that uh, nostalgia is a powerful, powerful tool. And when used well, it can more or less be like a a gateway drug, in my opinion. You know, it's like that first thing where people are like, Oh, I remember that. And then it's like, okay, now that I've got you in this like nice little fun place, do you also remember this? And you're like, oh right, yeah, yeah, I remember that. It's like, do you remember this? Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. And then it's like, do you remember now like where this is all gonna go? You know? And then, when you lead people down that path, then you can kind of like have a little bit of thought process with the songs that are being sung. And I feel like the performance also goes along that track, too, which is, I think, yeah. very, very beautiful. It's like, um, it's not trying to hit anybody over the head. I, I didn't necessarily want that for the projections or the play, but I think that. Uh, when you allow for those moments to come up it uh it inspires i think just a little bit of retrospection about and perspective about what you're listening to yeah Uh, and i feel like that that's what that's what could be special for this i I really feel like that that could be really fun um and at the same time you know it is a a play with some music in it, it should, should be exciting there's some things that aren't necessarily about that you know just maybe some exciting and and uh thrilling things that can happen but those little snippets are the things that i kind of were really excited about playing with in the show
0: yeah absolutely well and that you know he well i just said that the like the dialogue sort of takes a back seat i mean it is he's absolutely um it's not nostalgia for nostalgia's sake mm-hmm. either he is you know he's saying you know, when you get off at your last stop, when you get off this train of your life at your last stop, you have to ask, like, "Have are are you a good man? Right. Um, and so that question, I think, that kind of comes throughout the play is, like, he's reckoning with his own life. Um And so doing that through the music and through, um, through the dialogue. And then I think what we see when we see the images, um, you know, of the, like, for instance, the way that you, um, sort of, I'm not sure what the right. Uh, technical term is, but I want to say like superimpose the um, Sun Records and this hotel room, this sort of barren looking hotel room, and you and and you start thinking about well, what is the life of a musician? Mm-hmm. Um, like you can really kind of explore that given. Um, Given the images that you that you're looking at as he's singing the song about being lonely.
1: For sure. Yeah. I mean, and that's what's really cool about. I think the songs, what they give is like there is definitely a difference between what you see in Act One and Act Two. Uh, And, you know, the idea of like home life and family, uh, you know, opposed to yeah being in a hotel being by yourself being on the road how exciting maybe going everywhere could be but then actually it's like yeah but you're by yourself and then right. you've got all this money or you're, you're on the you've got, got your bigger house like that reflection between that house and his his house in arkansas like and then but the fact that like yeah you lose your your wife so then now you're by yourself like what what, what are all these what is it give and take you you get something you lose something and i feel like the if you can at least see that in some way that helps move us in time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um I'm not going to presume that those two projects that we've just talked about are or are not amongst your favorite projects you've ever done. Um, but I wonder if you would talk a little bit about about a favorite other than those. two. <laughs> um, do you, is there is there a favorite project either that you, you know, you um, have, have done recently or, or are looking forward to coming up?
1: Um, the one that I could talk about where I, I, I truly enjoyed, uh, every aspect was, um, actually a show, it's like five years ago. I mean, there's been some really great shows between them, but it's just to talk about a show called The Master Margarita. Mm-hmm. It's an adaptation of a book and uh, that particular one was taken from a script from Complicite, which is a devising company in Europe. Um, and the director, she did it for her thesis project in school. Uh, and we got pretty deep in terms of like what what we wanted to do. She added some stuff from the book into the play so the, to add some density. But the play is so dense still that there needed to be some... Heavy lifting in terms of what the projections or sound or any other design discipline would do to kind of help us figure out like how we're getting from one place to the next. The story Hmm. evolving uh, a writer in uh, Soviet Russia who is more or less just taken away at a certain point because his writings aren't, uh, you know, uh, accepted. And then you have the devil the literal devil coming to uh, Russia to just wreak some havoc and somehow these two things are uh, connected. And it's really interesting how eventually his his uh, lover makes a deal with the devil to get him out of jail. That's like the, that's where we get to. And then the end is obviously some sort of like, you know, elevation of all of it. I don't think it's super clear what happens at the end but it's, it's definitely a, a higher pl- plane of existence so i think it's really interesting to try to tackle that kind of story in a theatrical sense because it could be so easy to kind of do in a movie um but what was great about it was like i got a chance to do shadow play uh we did a lot of filming we did a lot of graphical work i projected on the floor i projected onto the scrim i projected on to a, a, is it a drop cloth that was like a velvet sheet. Um, mm-hmm. And it was represented in different ways. We got a chance to play around with like what types of projections mean something that if it was a projection from that time, it had a certain look. If it was like a, a magical projection, it had another look. If it was setting location in some way, it had a different look. Uh, and how we set locations sometimes in order to give an impression of a park we actually just projected uh the shadows of leaves blowing because we already had a park bench we even had like a fake tree so then like how what happens when you project the tree moving like obviously it was a tree in the space but like the tree moved was pretty cool.
0: that sounds like a amazing project it was super fun so i was yeah. super excited about it yeah yeah that sounds amazing. Um, and again, that sort of sense of uh, not the not literalness of it, mm-hmm. um, the sort of metaphorical approach to it.
1: For sure, for sure.
0: Yeah. And all of the questions that go into that, into you know, asking how do you um, how do you represent the different kinds of images that are going to be shown.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that that conversation's uh, super fun to have, sometimes difficult to have. Um, And it's not to say that, like, you know, that's the only way I would want to work. It's definitely a fun way. But I think sometimes the question comes like, you know, do we need projections or is projections too much? Um, And I think that that's a valid question. Like, not every production needs projections. Um, But I do think about, like, if we are using projections, how much are we trying to help the audience in this? Because if, you know, if a character says, we're in the park, how much do we need a picture of the park? Like, right. like really, like we they just told us. So right. if that's the case, what are we trying to do with that? Are we trying to, like, let them know that it's daytime? Are we trying to let them know it's nighttime? Are we trying to let them know that they're scared of the park? Or that it's a beautiful park? Are they supposed to be happy or sad? Like, these questions actually informs the look of something. And sometimes that also means that maybe we are more subtractive than additive in terms of that. And I feel Mm. like, uh, if, if those questions were asked more, the the content that comes from the imagery can be a little bit more ingrained in like what's actually being done. And maybe the conversation can be a little bit more healthy in terms of like whether or not we need projections at a certain moment, because then we know that the rules of the game are trying to convey this or that versus, letting us know what information we need. Um yeah. Which is always boring to me. So and sometimes it's necessary for sure. I I know that. Like I did um Indecent and that show is all about projected text. And in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. because of how heavy the show is and how actually abstract we go between spaces, that text is actually a great weight in terms of like contextualizing what what's going Absolutely. on. But sometimes yeah it's not necessary. So it's just, just that conversation just needs to happen, you
0: know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, speaking of conversations that need to happen, there's so much, I feel like uncertainty in the theater field right now, you know, both sort of in terms of what's happening with um, this global pandemic and the ways that it may impact us and um, the really critically important racial reckoning that I think a lot of theaters are, um, if not, you know, having conversations around and making significant change around, then they should be. Um, I know we are having those conversations and making changes, but I just wonder, um, I wonder if you have at this moment sort of thoughts or dreams about, you know, what what theater can be or should be in this time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's,
1: uh, it's interesting. I mean, I think that one of the things that I was really excited about when the pandemic happened was just like, I feel like we, we don't take enough time to look back at what we've done. And uh, one of the things that I feel like uh, time in the past, and I'm talking more about like the anthropological, anthropological logical nature of humanity is that you know people used to exist in seasons we were we were guided by mother nature in a lot of ways you know we would would work really hard at a certain part of the year and another another part you know because it was either too cold or the certain things won't grow that you just like chill out and you think about what's going to happen next year you know whether it be a flood whatever like there were just certain things that were depending on where you lived you just had to take a break and I think that modern society has ruined that in some ways. I mean, obviously, we tried to take vacations, but like an extended period of just self reflection, I think, is important to move forward. And I was uh, excited about what that might bring in terms of the pandemic for people. And obviously, specifically for the theater world, I think that, yeah, we just like work too much. Obviously, we still work in seasons, but summertime is usually just about prepping for fall. So. <laughs> That being said, it's like, yeah, where, where, where can we go from here? I mean, I feel like a lot of people's learned about new stuff. I feel like uh, people have learned how audiences will accept a lot of different things. And we found you know, where theaters are lacking in terms of representation. I feel like though, that in some ways, people are too guided in terms of just like what, uh, what everyone else is doing. And I feel like that there just needs to be an internal kind of questioning of what what they're doing for themselves. and that, and mm-hmm. I think that that in some ways answers the question of of diversity and answers the question of audience participation or 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 excitement. You know what what are the stories that can be told that aren't necessarily just about being diverse, but just about what is? what does it make, mean to make something for the people that are gonna see it? You know, and I think that's something that's what's really powerful about theater is that it is local. You know, I mean, obviously you can make a touring production. That's great. But I mean, it's not gonna reach everyone immediately like a movie. So what is it about, yeah, each individual institution that they can tell the story about the people in their community? And I think that if those conversations can happen, if, if we can open the, the door for those conversations, then I think healthy things will come from it. And it's not just about like, oh, well then we'll, we'll check these boxes in terms of like what needs to be done. It's like, are people gonna be excited about it? You know, like I think people's <laughs> is, is people are looking for entertainment and people are also looking for representation. Both of those things can coincide and it's not on a national level, it's a local level. That's what's special about yeah. theaters. It's, it's about the people where they are. And so I think that that's something that I'm really hopeful about. It's like, despite having an opportunity for national reach, especially with the opportunity of, of what the internet has given us and us learning about that, that actually making a show about where we are is, is also mm-hmm. just equally important because that's what makes it powerful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, in that connection, um, you know, we talk about theater being such an intimate art form Um, And that connection with audience members, I feel like is something that we've all missed over the last year plus, right? And so that, that, finding that connection and telling stories that help, help to build that connection feels really smart and like a beautiful thing to to make happen
1: yeah i'm hopeful
0: (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely well i have loved this conversation so much um and so i want to thank you Devontae, for taking this time and talking with me of course
1: thank you for inviting me this was super fun yeah no i'm I'm happy to be invited
0: Out of the Rehearsal Hall is a podcast production of Jiva Theatre Center in Rochester, New York. I'm Jenny Werner. Special thanks to our guest today, Devonte Johnson. Andrew Mark Wilhelm composed our theme song, and he and I edited our audio. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review for us on your podcast platform and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening today, and we'll see you next time we're Out of the Rehearsal Hall.